Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Coming up, I sit down with Dr. Tommy Wood. Tommy Wood is an MD, PhD, a neuroscientist, an elite-level professional nerd, although I would never say that to his face. He has coached world-class athletes in dozens of sports. He received an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience. This guy is an absolute whiz. Tommy is currently an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington, where his research interests include determining how early brain injury impacts brain health across the lifespan. Tommy serves as an associate editor of the Wiley Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. He is the director of the British Society for Lifestyle Medicine, and he consults for many, many digital health companies. Dr. Tommy Wood is a absolute unicorn in clinical knowledge as well as scientific knowledge. He really does bridge the gap from bench to bedside. In this episode, we talk about some very interesting concepts, how exercise can make you smarter, how to maintain long-term cognitive health. And finally, he addresses, does muscle mass really matter? I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Tommy Wood is a phenomenal asset to the scientific community. These episodes of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyons show are offered for free and the cost is for you to please share, comment, subscribe, help spread the word. I hope you like this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Dr. Tommy Wood. Brain function is critical to optimizing one's life, and we understand that it is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and a solution to cognitive function, supplementation to get the best out of your own brain can be found with Thesis, who is a sponsor of today's podcast. As a physician, I've worked with some of the best of the best, and I know firsthand that people need their own individual approach to optimization as it relates to medicine and especially as it relates to the brain. And luckily, I found a solution with Thesis and their nootropics have been a game changer for my personal productivity. Thesis is the world's first custom nootropic company. So they customize it based on a whole bunch of data and a quiz that you will go and you will fill out. And nootropics are nutrients found in nature or the human body that enhance cognitive function like energy, mood, focus. They leverage years of research and data collection. Head on over to takethesis.com slash Dr. Lyon. And Thesis has made the process of finding your perfect blend simple. Go to the website, take a short quiz, and they'll send you a starter kit with four different blend recommendations to try over the course of a month. Once you've had a chance to find your favorite, for my listeners, Thesis is taking 10% off your first box to get your own custom thesis starter kit, go online to takethesis.com slash Dr. Lyon. Use the code Dr. Lyon at checkout. Thesis is amazing. And again, it's really been a game changer for me and many of my patients. Special thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. That is L-M-N-T. Listen, my goal is to try to get a gallon of water a day in. One of the ways in which I can get better hydration is by adding an Element because, frankly, who likes drinking plain water? Element is a 
tasty electrolyte drink. It mixes with water. You can make it, mix it with sparkling water. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, none of the junk, and a ton of different flavors. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors. Yep, you heard me right. Eight flavors because let's face it, oftentimes we get bored. Number one, consuming a ton of water is a total drag. And number two, consuming the same flavor of water over and over again is also a total drag. You can head on over to Drink Element. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash a Dr. Lion and you'll get that eight single serving packet free. Also, Element offers no questions asked refund. That means you get to try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you can share it with a friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. So you have nothing to lose, but everything to gain because you will gain hydration. Welcome, Tommy Wood. This is a long time coming and it is such a privilege for me to have you on the show. You are an MD, PhD. You specialize and actually have essentially worked as a neuroscientist for, I don't know, how long? 20 years now? Uh, yeah, I've been working in neuroscience, basically doing lab research since I was an undergrad. So yeah, that's uh, now 20 years, almost exactly. And you're, you were at Cambridge, Oxford. Uh, you're now at the University of Washington, is that correct? And you are yeah. an associate professor there. And we have a similar love of special operations. Again, I hear that you won't hold that against me, but all amazing, all amazing. So your contribution to neuroscience and cognitive functioning is, is critical. But what's so unique about you and is very unusual is your interface of skeletal muscle fitness and more of a integrative approach to medicine as an MD, PhD than I would say the majority of people, which makes you a unicorn. And we love having unicorns. No pressure. No pressure. We love having unicorns on the show. So we're going to get right into it. There is a lot of things to cover. And in particular, I am super grateful for you because one of the things that you do talk about, and I haven't really heard anybody else talk about it, is this concept of muscle health as it relates to cognition. Hmm. And uh, we can both agree that that's critical. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, I mean, you've got this paper that's going to be coming out and it's strength and multiple types of physical activity, but not low muscle mass, independently predict cognitive function in NHANES. And there's a, a certain time frame of that data set. So I'd love for you to kick it off and, and talk about muscle, muscle health and brain function. Sure. So th this is something that I'm very, very passionate about, as you can probably tell, or as you know. Um, and throughout my academic career, so like I said, I started during neuros doing neuroscience research 20 years ago. And then after you know, finishing undergraduate studies, medical school, PhD, um, I, you know, throughout that time, spent, spent a lot of uh, time working with athletes on the side. I kind of had these two strands to my work. So one side was the formal academic work, the neuroscience. I study ways to treat multiple types of brain injury from right at the beginning of life, neonatal brain injury, but I also study traumatic brain injury, and then late in life, cognitive decline and how those things kind of tie together. And alongside my academic career, um, first, as a student, I was a 
uh, a student athlete. I was a rower primarily, and then I was a I, I coached other rowers, and I became increasingly interested in athletic performance, and was part of a company for a few years where we worked with uh, various levels of athletes, including a wide number of professional and world champion athletes in something like twelve different sports at, at this point, and. So I have these two parts where I'm studying the brain and I'm studying the body. And one thing that's been nice about neuroscience over the last decade or so is that we've realized that the brain and body are connected. <laughs> They're not just these separate entities uh, to be studied independently, which is what was basically done for decades prior to that. And what you see from multiple areas of research now, uh, which you have talked about uh, extensively because it's so important, is how protective muscle mass is in terms of like overall health, all-cause mortality, metabolic health. Um, and it's essentially the same for, for the brain. And for all the same reasons, you know, the myokines that are released during exercise, they, they're beneficial for the brain. Lactate is great for the brain, uh, you know, which you produce during uh, vigorous physical activity. And when you then try and pass some of this out, this is what we've been doing recently, you might think, well, what are the various contributions to uh, brain performance or cognitive uh, performance? And it's because you think, well, there's physical activity and there's the muscle mass that you get as a result of physical activity. And then there's the function of that muscle as well. So those are the things that we were exploring in, in this paper. And what we essentially found, um, much to my disappointment, was <laughs> that more muscle was not more better for your brain, um, which is, of course, what I would have preferred to show. But that's, you know, the data don't, don't give you the answer. And, and actually, I think what comes out uh, is how important muscle quality is. So just having more muscle isn't necessarily that useful if that muscle isn't functional. And this is really the signal that we see from, from these data. So it was, it was about 1,500 people. Uh, they had DEXA scans. They had cognitive function tests. They had uh, strength tests. They did a, a leg extension uh, test. This is for, the, for N. Haynes. And when you look at these population data sets, and it's the same in N. Haynes, it's the same in other big ones like the UK Biobank, um, what you see is that the people who have the most muscle are just bigger people in general, right? If you gain total mass, then, you know, which you, you, which you gain, but, but most people gain by being in a caloric surplus. If you gain more mass, you gain some muscle tissue with that. Um, but if you're not training that muscle to actually do anything physical, you're not getting an increase in function with it. And that seems to be detrimental. So that was kind of the signal that we saw from our data was that strength um, is critically, um, and, you know, very strongly associated with cognitive performance, um, as are the various types of physical activity. So we looked at just general physical activity. Are you sedentary? Do you walk a lot? Do you have to do heavy loads, uh, you know, lift things as part of your work? Do you do vigorous physical activity? And then do you do some kind of resistance training? So we looked at those separately. And what you see is physical activity predicts cognitive performance and strength predicts cognitive performance even after taking into account physical activity. But muscle mass does not. Um, and you can then also, like when we looked at this uh, in various ways, you see that muscle mass is not predicted by the amount of physical activity that somebody does. So that means that people are not gaining muscle by doing by lifting weights, they're gaining muscle just because they're gaining more mass. And then along with that comes worse metabolic health, worse body composition overall. Um, so the idea really is that more muscle does seem to be protective, you know, overall. But the real benefit is if that muscle is functional. 
And you only get functional muscle by actually moving it um, and training it. And so I think that's where we see this critical connection between the, the amount of muscle, the function that it has, uh, and the brain. And uh, to my knowledge, this is one of the first papers that's been done kind of laying the foundation for this work, really highlighting muscle quality and the way in which we accrue muscle. Yeah. And uh, and it, I think it's, it's interesting to me because when you when you uh, hang out in health-related social media, as you and I do, you, you may have seen there was a, a recent paper looking at uh, muscle mass and cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. This is it from the UK Biobank. So it was about 400,000 people, I think they had in the end. And they saw that particularly in men, those with the highest muscle mass had the highest risk of cardiovascular disease and the highest risk of death, which kind of disagrees with what we've seen previously, which is that muscle mass is protective. Um, but what I think we're, we're seeing from that, and this is really evident when, this is one of my personal bugbears, is that you know scientists, they get all this data, and you can do all these calculations in your statistical program, whichever one you use, and you can get some graphs um, of the relationship between a certain metric and uh, an outcome, like death. Um, and you can do all that without really knowing what your data mean, right? So you basically have, for want of a better description, you have people who don't lift, sitting in a tiny box room somewhere, just staring at numbers, and they have no, they don't really realize how this connects to reality because they don't understand, you know, what muscle does and how you gain it because that's not their expertise, right? They're epidemiologists, and I think this is what what's happening. So they're just like, well, look, in this data set, more muscle means that you die sooner, but they don't think about, well, what are the ways that you can gain muscle? Like, which is beneficial, which isn't? And they said things like, well, if you have more muscle mass, then you have more blood volume, and then that makes it harder for your work but harder for your heart to work, and then that causes cardiovascular disease. Which, I mean, if you're an athlete and you have like healthy, um, you have healthy vascular beds, like your cardiovascular function is good, and that's how you gained your muscle. Like that statement just doesn't make sense. That's not true. Like having more blood volume isn't it isn't harder to to work against it. Plus, we know that exercise is protective, and that's like your your heart working hard. So like there are things like this that just don't make sense. And I think it's because nobody's looking at um, the data with this eye of, well, like thinking about athletes, like thinking about training muscle and what that results in. Yeah. And, and so and this I is think, just like my personal bugbear. No, I think it's amazing. You're bringing up two really important points. Number one, you're bringing up epidemiology data. You're bringing up large population data sets versus randomized controlled trials or, or things in which we can control outcomes to the best of our ability. And of course, there's a difference between animal studies and humans, both of which are incredibly relevant. And, you know, obviously there's certain outcomes that we can push in, in rodent type models and things. The other thing that you're talking about is really the quality of the tissue that an individual would have. So muscle quality um, and also muscle mass. The paper was really well done. You talked about a few things like appendicular lean mass, a fat-free mass index, in terms of what we know about muscle mass and what we know about, uh, again, we're looking at populations. And not only that, when we're looking at population data, the non-exercise, the sedentary population is a disease state. Mm, yeah. And, you know, we speak about it as if it's uh, there's normal, healthy, sedentary individuals, but that essentially is, is not accurate. When you look, you know, across various types of, of uh, data and this is human data and of course 
we have to rely on animal models in certain cases. I do a, you know, the majority of my work in brain injury is in animal models to understand the process, develop new treatments, things like that. So, so that is important. But when you, when you have say sedentary mice, um, we know that generate just being sedentary generates a pro-inflammatory state, right? It is a disease state to, to not move at all. And so not, there's like two parts to it. When you, when you, move regularly you're kind of removing this negative state this pro-inflammatory state of being sedentary plus you're adding on benefits of actually you know moving um and we see similar things in humans so uh, i think one of the best examples is those who have spinal cord injuries so they cannot move significant parts of their body and that in itself is a pro-inflammatory state. That muscle tissue, which is not being moved, becomes pro-inflammatory. It becomes pathogenic uh, unless you find ways to move it uh, externally. And it, you know, that that muscle, the quality, you get less of it, first of all, and then the quality decreases. So you have higher amounts of intramuscular triglycerides, so more fat in the muscle tissue. It's more pro-inflammatory and it's associated with significant insulin resistance and metabolic disease. So we know that just being sedentary um, is in itself, you know, a pro-inflammatory state, and so that's that's like, and that's where most people stand. So if you're sedentary but you have a large amount of muscle mass, which is probably accrues just to gaining more total mass, that is not, you know, high quality functional anti-inflammatory brain supporting muscle tissue, and that's where most people's muscle come from. So you need to appreciate the population that these things uh, are being studied in, and, and anytime. Um, somebody's looking at these population data sets. Um, and this is an interesting thing because, so those who are really interested in their health, right? You may get really hyper-focused on certain biomarkers, blood tests, things like that. And you say, oh yeah, I know that my blood test for this, my blood sugar needs to be in this range because that that's associated with the best health outcomes. And that's probably true, but the population that that was derived from is probably nothing like you. Like if you're somebody who's very active, you know, has good body composition, you know, sleeps well, eats well. Um, those people don't really exist in the population data sets because, you know, in general, they're relatively rare. So if, if we think about this from a body composition standpoint, there is nobody in the NHANES data set who has a body composition like mine. There just isn't. So I can't use that data really to tell me anything about me. But I mean, I, I think I have good, good body composition. I think it's going to be protective of my long-term health. But actually, I have to admit that's also conjecture because there's no study long-term of people like me and their health outcomes. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. One, we can say, actually, this population isn't anything like me, so I don't need to worry about the findings there. But the other side is, well, there aren't really that many populations of, of uh, people like me, so I just kind of have to figure it out best uh, as I go. And that's just that's one very interesting thing about our population research and how we apply that to what are ostensibly quite healthy populations. And as we move over to think about what is a healthy population, how can we begin to think about optimal levels of muscle mass? And obviously, before we get to optimal levels of what muscle mass would be, we have to think about what potentially is pathologically low levels. Mm. The, in general, the, the literature also supports this idea that, and I think it's reasonable, it supports the idea that what's really bad is low levels of muscle mass, sarcopenia, dinopenia, 
you know, so the lack of functional muscle tissue. Like that's what's associated with higher um, all-cause mortality, uh, worse cancer outcomes, things like that. Um, and those cutoffs kind of differ from study to study, but I usually think about it in terms of FFMI or the fat-free mass index, which was basically you take how much you weigh, you remove some estimate of your body fat percentage, and then you calculate the same way you would calculate a BMI. So divided by your height in meters squared. And this is kind of, you know, of, of other things like uh, some studies use, like, like you mentioned, the appendicular lean muscle index, which is something that we also tried in our, in our paper. That's basically you have to do a DEXA scan. You then have to calculate how much muscle tissue is in your arms and legs. It's just more difficult. Whereas an FFMI, you just have to have some estimate of your, of your body fat and your weight and your height, and you, and you can get a pretty good idea. The cutoffs, at least when I've looked at the data and, and, and other studies seem to agree, is that for women, the, the risk really starts to increase for things like all-cause mortality at uh, FFMI below 14. Um, and for men, it's about 17. Of course, there's like a buffer there. You don't want to be right on the cutoff. Um, and different people you know, uh, suggest different cutoffs. So probably something closer to 19 for men and 17 uh, for women. And you know, hopefully that's something that, that most people can calculate. And that's where you, that's, you know, once you're, you're at those thresholds, that's probably enough muscle tissue. Like the, we don't yet have this good um, evidence that more is better above that point. Um, except for one study that came out recently that looked at this across, like they took seven different data sets and they looked at FFMI and all-cause mortality risk. And they said, well, first of all, that the relationship between FFMI and mortality was the same in men and women, which doesn't make sense because men and women have, in general, different amounts of muscle mass relative to their height. And then they said that the cutoff for the lowest risk was an FFMI of 22, which is pretty high, <laughs> Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's pretty, um, a, pretty athletic there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, great. Like, if you get an FMMI of, of 22, it's great. But I, I think this was another example of people looking at the data without really knowing what it means. Like, so for those who don't think about muscle mass all day, um, an FMMI of 25 is this sort of like theoretical cutoff of where you can get to without performance enhancing drugs. Of course, there are people who um, are above that just by accruing large amounts of total mass. And we see that in the enhanced data set. But for like athletic individuals, tw 25 is is high. Um, and so like trying to get close to that and thinking that that's where a pop like a general population would see benefit, I don't really believe that. So I, I think, you know, somewhere around 19 to 20 for men, you know, 16 to 17 for women, I think that's probably the sweet spot. And then above that, you know, we don't really know whether there's more benefit. Hmm. I think that's really important to point out because... Uh, there's a lot of talk about BMI and a lot of talk about body fat percentage, but there's not a ton of discussion of what low ma muscle mass looks like, how much fat-free mass an individual should have. Now, where do you think, you know, when we talk about fat-free mass index, we're not, are we just talking about skeletal muscle mass or are we talking about all fat-free mass? Yeah, so it's all fat-free mass. Uh, and again, um, if you're trying to isolate the effect of just muscle tissue, then something like ALMI the appendicular lean muscle index. That's useful because you're just looking at skeletal muscle muscle, and you're just looking at it in the limbs, which is where you know you're maybe most active, and it's most related to, to physical activity. Um, however, uh, F, we know that the other components of FFMI, like bone, are really important, and so that kind of gets 
rolled in there. And in our study, we found that the relationship between low uh, muscle mass, either as ALMI or FFMI and cognitive function was essentially the same. Um, and I think that you know, including bone in there is helpful in some ways because we know that bone is incredibly important, again, for preve preventing uh, fracture risk. But then it's also, it's not just this uh, completely dead weight that holds your body together, right? It's an active tissue, just like the mu just like the muscle is. So, so yes, FMI includes all of your lean tissue, but I, I think there's some benefit from including that. Don't you think that it's interesting that our ability to specifically and only look at skeletal muscle is a bit prohibitive. You know, I mean, they're talking about, I, I'm sure you've seen some of um, William Evans's data. He's starting to look at D3 creatine as more uh, specific ways to look at skeletal muscle. But, you know, essentially, we don't have a great way other than perhaps CT MRI to identify this tissue, which is a secretory organ and mm. a whole organ system. I think... You know, there's there's two sides to it. One is like there's the pursuit of knowledge mechanism, like really understanding what's going on, and that's that's important, right? I think that's incredibly important. The sort of this pursuit of knowledge for the the sake of knowledge, and we don't know when what's just knowledge will actually become useful things to apply in real life. Like that, that's always a part of science, right? You'll discover something now that isn't useful for for twenty years, and that like that continued pursuit is important. But then the other side of it is like, what are the practical things that individuals can can take away that they know is useful that has you know a meaningful implication for for their lives? And that's where I think simpler measurements and tools become important. So FFMI, like you just remove the body fat component, you estimate your your, your lean mass, and it's important for a whole bunch of things. So when we're thinking about the brain, there are now several studies. That, that show it, either looking at brain volume or brain atrophy, so like how much your brain shrinks with age, as well as elements of cognitive function. If you're thinking about body composition, um, muscle mass is the best predictor of those things. So muscle mass is more important than fat mass. It's more, more important than BMI. And we're like, we're like so hyper-focused on body fat. When actually, I know. <laughs> for, particularly for the brain, but a whole bunch of other things, like muscle mass is the thing that we should care about. And, and I like that as a takeaway because it's also weight neutral, right? I don't care about, you know, the the mass that you exert on a scale, due, like, like the force due to gravity, right? What I care about is how much functional muscle tissue you have. And that, that can improve and increase regardless of anything else. And that's something that I think is really positive. And that's what we should be. That's what we should be telling people about. I mean, I pretty much think that we should stop the podcast here because that is the most <laughs> critical statement of all time. And you and I could not be more aligned. Again, you are one of the only people that I have heard discuss it in this way. And I just feel so uh, much in alignment with everything that you're saying. It's incredible. Yes, we are hyper focused on adipose tissue. It's interesting. You know, there's all these theories and paradigms of thinking, and we've been so fixated on obesity numbers, you know, for example, we know that 73% of adults are either overweight or obese. What percentage of uh, individuals have healthy muscle mass? We don't even have that conversation. No. We have no idea. Yeah. And, and it's probably, you know, and, and that's like mixed in with this. Oh, yeah. So, so first we just say, well, do you have enough muscle mass? But nobody asks, well, is that muscle useful or not? And and I think that's that's really what's what's so important. And again, it's something that it doesn't take much, right? 
any movement to stimulate that muscle tissue is particularly in people who are sedentary has you know multiple uh but you know beneficial downstream effects so just small small things like even with the muscle you have right improve the muscle quality of of, of the muscle that you have right that is likely to have uh incredible benefits and so i mean I, so what one thing that is important right while we're talking about this is like where is where the message is coming from and so I actually have I have, I have a story about you, which I think is really really important. You don't know this story, but uh oh, <laughs> no, it's it's good, it's great. It's okay, yeah. yeah so um, we'll start by saying that most of the time when I talk about muscle tissue, like I can see people roll their eyes. They're like, "Calm down, bro. Like clearly you love bicep curls. So like, why should I? I don't want to look like you. And of course, that's not what I'm saying. Like we we already said that like more isn't necessarily better. Like I like to lift heavy things. It's what I do for a hobby. Um, that doesn't mean you have to, but I do think that you could do some more muscle strengthening type activities and it will have a great benefit to your health. So th the messenger becomes important here as well, because often people are talking about muscle mass are people who have a lot of muscle mass and the listener might not appreciate that. So um, I was at a conference for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine last September. Uh, so, which is now the second largest lifestyle medicine society in the world, and um, I'm one of the founding directors and trustees. And I was speaking to uh, a GP there. We were just like sat in the back of the audience. We were we were having a conversation, um, and I was mentioning that I was about to go on my friend Rongan Chastity's podcast. You've you've been on his podcast, um, and what he said was um, he was uh, I'd given a talk about muscle mass and all cause mortality and mortality risk so that was what my talk was on and he said you know i've been telling my wife that she needs to lift weights um for years like the importance of, of muscle tissue and like she's just ignored me she like, just hasn't sunk in but then she hears you <laughs> on rongan's podcast and she sends it to her husband and says look look here's a woman talking about muscle mass now i think i should gain you know go and uh, lift some weights in the gym so sometimes you need to hear this message from somebody who's like you um, and I think that's really important. So why am I saying that? It means that somebody who's listening to this, um, you have a sphere of influence of people who are more like you, who are maybe more likely to listen to you than they are to listen to me, right? And uh, I've seen this in multiple other scenarios, particularly with women, um, where they would prefer to hear this message from somebody who's more like them. So say a postmenopausal woman you know, hears a message about muscle mass from another postmenopausal woman. Great. So everybody just realize you have your, your small group of people who you know, who are like you, who you can influence. And that's how we spread um, the word and, and get this stuff out, um, just like bit by bit within, within our own groups. Um, so that was, my, that was a, a little uh, tangent, but I think it I kind of it. relates to getting this message out. I love it. And by the way, I'm not uh, postmenopausal yet. So don't. No, I, I didn't mean <laughs> that. I didn't mean no, no, that. I just meant. Busting your chops. I, yes. had, uh, I had another conversation <laughs> where that was relevant, yes, not yes, relevant yes. to this conversation. I'm, yeah. I'm totally busting your chops. It is critical. <laughs> the The messenger is, is very important in terms of what is said, how it's said. That's where there's room for all of us. And especially the mission is so big from my perspective of, of changing this conversation of, of body fat. I don't know if you know this, but I did my geriatric and nutritional science fellowship at Washington University, uh, which- Wait, the, in the one in St. Louis or the one in, in Seattle? In St. Louis. In St. Okay, Louis. Okay, so I'm at the Was one in Seattle. Yes. Yeah. And um, 
where I really realized this, so basically I looked, there was two parts to this fellowship. There was the clinical care in which I was a geriatrician and I worked in a cognitive clinic. You know, you go to the nursing homes, dementia, you work on the hospital floors, all of which actually you're very skilled at in terms of geriatrics and cognition. I know that you work on the full spectrum. So my clinical work was geriatrics and the majority of that was cognitive performance. And the clinical research I did was on obesity. Mm. So I looked at the interface between obesity and cognition. And that's actually where this concept of muscle-centric medicine was born. And I think that we all have our aha moment. And I was imaging this woman's brain. She was in her mid-50s, mother of three, always cycled with the same 20 pounds, yo-yo dieted her entire life. And you know, we did we did insulin clamps and muscle biopsies, but also part of it was looking at the fMRI image of her brain and her brain, she had atrophy in her mid-50s. And it was at that moment that I felt really responsible that we had failed her as a medical society, that she had constantly destroyed this tissue from years of yo-yo dieting. And we were still telling her to, you know, eat less and exercise more. And we completely dismissed the fact that skeletal muscle was this organ system that could have interfaced with her brain uh, above and beyond what she and her perception had been. And that's really where this concept from from me came from this muscle-centric medicine. And I'm sure that you've seen the interface between cognition and muscle mass over a period of time. And I would love to hear did you have an aha moment? Was there a moment that you really decided that perhaps changed the trajectory of what you were studying? It was much more gradual uh, than that, I, I, w- I will say. So when I was a junior doctor uh, in, in central London, uh, one of my rotations was in in elderly, elderly care, uh, as we called it. Um, and actually sort of relevant to all of this, it was, it was funny because I had a, I had a consultant, uh, which is what we call an attending, um, who uh, I was sort of attached to for a few months. And he's this German guy, Dr. Thomas Ernst, who would do all these, like p- people would kind of like talk about him because he was a, like a bit different. Like his main focus, which I think is still important, right? It's not quite relevant to muscle tissue, but it's relevant more broadly, is his focus was um, mindfulness. So he'd bring in, um, you know, he'd, he'd go around and see all his older elderly patients and he'd like spend half of his time talking about uh, mindfulness type exercises. And everybody was like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> like, like, what's going on here? Um, and it, then like several years later, I reflect back on this and and you sort of, this is somebody who understands part of the bigger picture and it's not part of traditional medicine. And they've sort of, they, they realize the, the impact that they can have by, by bringing in these other ideas. And so when I then take that to the work that I've done, um, I sort of, like I said, I, I study the brain across the entire lifespan. And a big focus of it is early brain development. And then also being interested in, in athletes and what, like what provides sustained performance, and it's usually sustained health, right? So I work with a ton of endurance athletes, and what's the way, if you want to keep showing up to the start line, you need to prevent injuries. What's the best way to prevent injuries in an endurance athlete? Get them to strength train. Like by far, uh, you know, one of the most uh, impactful ways to, to prevent injuries. And so 
you kind of see these pockets where de- regardless of the the type of injury you have re- regardless of like what you're trying to do with your brain the same things are important again and again so like we think that neck strength is important for minimizing concussions right so strength becomes like you you're just you're just providing this you know greater structure that that's uh, protecting the brain and then you look at uh, say preterm babies so i do a lot of work uh, with uh, babies born preterm and you see that those who ha- who are, have these at risk brains so the more preterm you're born the more likely you are to have some kind of neurodevelopmental impairment cerebral palsy some other kind of um, uh, brain injury um, in those uh, babies as they get older they have improved cognitive function in those who gain more muscle mass relative to to fat mass so like even there it seems like muscle mass uh, is protective and and then um the sort of the function of that muscle is important as well so uh babies born preterm those uh, who have the best motor coordination also have the best executive function so our ability to coordinate and move our bodies which is an important part of muscle function is also related to the quality of the brain so you can kind of see like regardless of how you look at it um, plus all the stuff we talked about earlier in terms of muscle mass being one of the best predictors of brain mass, for want of a, b- a better word, um, these same things are important for the brain throughout throughout the lifespan. So, you know, muscle tissue, which relates to physical activity and all the reasons that can be beneficial, but then also diet quality, sleep, you know, all of these same things are important, like regardless of where you're looking. And so it's, it's that kind of like the tying together of, you know, you have, you know, I'm focusing on the brain, you have one brain, um, and the same things are important for the brain, regardless of where you look. And one of those things, um, which I think is sort of less well, people talk about physical activity in the brain. We know that's we know that's important. People talk about diet quality in the brain. We're, we're starting to appreciate that's important. Sleep, but less people or fewer people are talking about muscle tissue. And I think that's that's why you know I then then decide to try and toot that horn. I'm very grateful to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. You know, summer is coming up. I mean, it's not that far off. And everybody wants a bikini body, which requires work. Bikini, mankini, whatever it is that you want to wear, you want to look good on the beach. How are you going to do it? Number one, you're going to train. And number two, you're going to eat. And number three, surprisingly, you're going to get your blood work checked. Why? because you'll be able to see in real time places that require improvement. People age at different speeds. We've all seen that. And the things that you can control, you have to execute. You have to know what your hormones are doing. You have to know what your inflammation is like. And that's why Inside Tracker, like inside your body, provides you with a personalized plan to improve your metabolism, reduce stress, improve sleep, and optimize your health for the long haul. Inside Tracker was created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, the whole shebang to identify where you are optimized and most importantly, where you are not, because the places that you are not optimized are the places for improvement. Do not wait, take action deploy a program that is going to work for you. But again, the only way to do that is to see what is going on under the hood. For a limited time only, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Again, this is blood work, DNA. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. 
Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. Today, I'd like to highlight glutamine. Glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in your body, and actually, it is a non-essential amino acid, meaning your body can make glutamine. However, during periods of intense training, high stress, sickness, gut issues, your body oftentimes cannot keep up with the glutamine production necessary to help ensure recovery and help with things like gut health. What does that mean? That means that supplementing with glutamine, which by the way, I have done for many years in my own medical practice, glutamine can help improve gut health, also may aid in strengthening your immune system, essentially making your body more capable. Those are just a few of the benefits of taking glutamine. I have been using it for years in the practice, as especially as it relates to gut health. So head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and grab some glutamine today. It is great to do cyclically if you know that you are coming up to a time of more stress or any intensive training. Glutamine can be your friend. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Uh, I think it's it's so valuable and so important. When you think about muscle tissue, how do you think about quality? How do you identify the quality? Is it is it a visual? Is it a biopsy? Or is it more related to physical function, like strength or some kind of coordination? So if I were, you know, a real exercise physiologist, sports scientist, you know, like uh, my friend Andy Galpin, Right. Who, by the way, I love Andy. He's a great uh, dude. Yeah, he's he, he's fantastic, and um, is actually some of this stuff that that you see in that paper and some other things that we're trying to figure out from these population data sets. Is there a way that we can predict muscle quality without having to do a mu- muscle biopsy, um, which is very Not painful <laughs> and difficult to do? Um, so, if you're something like that, then you have an answer which relates to the types of muscle fibers. How much intramuscular triglycerides? So like how much fat is around them? But you can you can measure my, mitochondrial function. Uh, you can measure insulin sensitivity in individual fibers. Right, that's some metric of of muscle quality, and you know from a, a scientific standpoint. But then you know if you think about well, how can I figure this out in an average individual? Then I think the most important function of a muscle is to move something against resistance. Right. So, and that's something that that we can that we can measure. Um, and one of the reasons why we used that particular chunk of NHANES data, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and two, is because in that chunk they did rather than doing grip strength when they did it different times, they did. And you know, grip strength is is is, a, is another important predictor of longevity. Um, and you know, wait, do you it believe it relates. is? Do you believe it is? Yes, I, but I, only because it relates more broadly got to it. overall strength. So. The way some people interpret it is they're like, <laughs> you know, I have, to train, this, right? I have to train my grip strength <laughs> okay, because that'll make okay. me live longer. Of course, that's <laughs> not true. No, that's, I think grip strength is a proxy of overall strength and like physical health. So that's why it's a good predictor. That doesn't Wait, mean can that. I, can I ask you one more question about yes, grip strength? Absolutely. Is, um, so grip strength, of course, you're talking about predictor of uh, longevity and mortality. Are we born with a certain amount of grip strength? So it will depend. So well, there's a few things that determine grip strength, right? So one is how long are your fingers, right? So there's a there's a there's a lever aspect. Uh, so bigger people with bigger hands will have generally have stronger hands, 
And we know that the size of a muscle is proportional to its strength. It's not true for everybody. Uh, but generally, the more muscle you have, the stronger you are. Then, but not in the in sort of the general population. That's kind of where we're going. Um, so th there will be some predetermined aspects of, of grip strength. Yes. Okay. Um, just a just a, a question and a thought. But um, yes. So the way in which we think about muscle quality, you were saying, is really get busy, do something. Yeah. So so the. So, so the reason why we did this bit of NHANES is because rather than doing grip strength, which, like I said, I think is a, is a proxy of other things that we really care about, um, they did leg strength. And if you're thinking about risk of falls, hip fractures, a larger muscle mass that's probably more related to your overall strength, I think leg strength is a much better test than grip strength. So that's why we picked the, that chunk because they did leg strength uh, assessments. Um, and so then where I think you might get some idea of uh, muscle quality in this kind of data set is to say, for a given amount of muscle tissue in your leg, how strong is that leg? So you can say, if you have a lot of muscle mass, but it's not very strong, you probably have low muscle quality. Whereas if you have less muscle mass, but it's very strong, you probably have high muscle quality. Now, of course, in relation to you know, very exact tests of the muscle fibers, it's not. It's, it's a very imperfect test, but it's one way that you might be able to start to unpick some of this stuff in, in a population, and then also say to an individual, right? Here's how strong, you know, is strong enough, right? Here's how we know that you, you know, your muscle tissue is probably in in good shape, and so like that's the kind. That's how I think about it because then it's more. It's easier to relate it to something that's useful to an individual who's listening to me talk about it. And it's totally translatable, which is yeah. amazing. Where do you think that this paper is going to lead you? What is the have you thought about the next step in collecting this body of evidence? So the, there are other data sets that we could explore. This data set is relatively small. Um, so the UK Biobank is a much larger data set uh, with similar metrics. They don't have leg strength. They do have grip strength, your favorite. Um, and, Were you and surprised so by that question? <laughs> Were you surprised by that question? I'm um, just curious about, you know, there's some uh, spectrum of understanding with, when it comes to grip strength, whether it's... Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised by, by that question. <laughs> I mean, only only pleasantly, because again, I, it's, it's one of the... Like when you see people apply this knowledge, right? So, so you, you'll have health-related um, pro, you know, proponents. They could be health coaches, doctors, people on social media, right? Who talk about strength. And I'm glad they're talking about strength. This is important. But they're like, here's this paper that shows that grip strength is, you know, X important for longevity. Here are all the grip exercises for you to do. And it's <laughs> like, know. well, I know, I know. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that it's not important, right? So imagine you stumble and fall, being able to grab onto something to stop yourself from falling. Great, really important. But, you know, if, if I was going to, if, if, if you were going to do something like just one exercise, don't do grip <laughs> exercises, do a deadlift. Right. Um, so, so that's where I think things get that mix, get mixed up. But interestingly, so UK Biobank is one data set. They have grip strength. In that paper we talked about earlier where they looked at muscle mass and, um, and cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality in UK Biobank, they saw this discrepancy but didn't see that it was there. What they saw was the, like, those with the most amount of muscle tissue had the highest cardiovascular disease and death risk. But those with the highest grip strength had the lowest. So what you're telling me 
is that it's muscle quality that's an important predictor. These, these are people with a lot of muscle that isn't very strong. That's what's important, not that they had more muscle. Um, so I think we could, we could maybe pass some of that out. I'd like to do that. Um, and then the next step, I think, is tie some of these metrics that you can get from a population data set um, and turn them into uh, some meaningful metrics. And so this is something that I've tried to do. So uh, take uh, powerlifting data. So open powerlifting has basically the data for every lift that's ever done in a powerlifting composition anywhere in the world for you know years. It's an amazing data set, like hundreds of thousands of people lifting. And what's nice about that is, you know, there are people showing up to powerlifting competitions in the 90s, which is amazing. So you can say, in somebody who trains regularly, and I imagine that if you're a powerlifter showing up in your 90s, you probably go to the gym at least two or three times a week. In people who are training regularly, this is how strong they are, and this is the trajectory of strength over the lifespan. So it's not necessarily the same individual from their 30s to their 90s, but you can see this trajectory. And what you see is that the rate of um, strength loss with age in powerlifters is actually very similar to the rate of strength loss in the general population. So, wow. and which was which was surprising to me. Um, but what you can say with some like statistical jiggery pokery, which I did, which is probably not you probably couldn't publish it because you kind of have to infer infer a bunch of stuff. But basically, and that. And the, the problem is that in powerlifting, people squat, like properly squat. In general population studies, nobody squats, like they leg press. And the leg press is great. If that's all you have access to, please do it. Love it. But turning a squat number into a leg press number is really difficult. And I've tried a number of different ways. So I, I'd like to be able to do that to say, like, here's what it looks like in the trained population. Here's what it looks like in the general population. But with that, you can kind of see that the, you know, with some kind of like hand waving, that the powerlifters reach the same relative strength about 20 years later compared to the general population. So that means that even though the rate of decline is the same in, a, like, in terms of percentage, those who lift, they have a higher start point from which to lose strength. So you have a bigger buffer. And that means that you can end up at any given age with a strength of somebody who's like 10 to 15 years younger in the general population, at least. So that that's where I, I think is important. So we can say, here's how strong maybe you need to be to, to be live independently, that kind of stuff. I think that's important relative and you kind of use those comparisons. And then another thing that I, that's important is when you talk about muscle quality, is how do we relate what we measure um, in terms of you know strength, relative to muscle mass in the population to, you know, real um, muscle quality metrics. So finding some way to validate. Uh, so if, if I predict you're somebody with low quality muscle based on how strong you are relative to the amount of muscle you have, plus maybe some some blood tests, we know there is, you know, probably related to metabolic health, CRP, some other things. Um, you know, can we validate that in actual people where we have strength and body composition and actual muscle biopsies? I think that would be a nice thing to do. Um, and that's something that Andy Galpin and I have, have talked about and hopefully he doesn't mind me talking about it. Um, <laughs> but so finding some ways to say, we've tested this in like the real lab situation. 
here's how it relates to you as an individual who doesn't need to go and get a muscle biopsy. Maybe you just, you know, do a leg press and have a blood test. And then we have some idea of muscle quality and, and what things we can, we can do to improve that. Hmm. That's brilliant. And, and I hope you guys do come up with something. I have two questions kind of off the tail end of that. Do you think that we'll ever be able to measure myokines, other indirect or perhaps direct markers of not just inflammation or inflammatory states or metabolic health, but actually blood markers of the impact of the health of the skeletal muscle? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, there, are, there are several uh, of, of interest, right? You could think of BDNF, you know, um, Irisin was popular for a long time. LACFI, the like that, that combination of uh, lactate and phenylalanine, which was discovered, you know, just a, a year or so ago. You know, I think every couple of months there's this big paper in <laughs> like nature yes. or science that says, we discovered this new molecule that muscle releases when you exercise and here's why it's good for you. Um, and so there's like multiple interesting things about that to me. One is that like physical activity is probably the one thing that everybody agrees on is good for your health. But we still don't know how it works. Like right. we know we have some <laughs> idea of how it works, but we don't really know how it works. So I think that's interesting, right? I can recommend it to you without really knowing any of the mechanism. So there's like multiple parts that come out. I think yes, we can do advanced metabolomic studies. We can look at individuals based on their muscle mass and muscle strength and muscle quality. You know, we can do muscle biopsies, and then we can look at you know, the circulating metabolome, like which metabolites that we believe are, are generated by the muscle tissue are, the, are, you know, are, are circulating. The difficult part of it is then linking like, well, what effect does that have elsewhere? We can sort of, in mouse studies, we can kind of maybe knock one out or overexpress one and, and see how that affects things. But then there's also a temporal component that makes it trickier, right? So a lot of things, these things are released during exercise, generally proportional to the intensity of the exercise, uh, but not necessarily. And then they may initially have one effect and then longer term they have another effect. So one of the best known myokines, probably the, actually the first myokine I think was IL-6, which yep. is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, right? So initially exercise looks pro-inflammatory. It also looks like it generates oxidative stress. You're like, this is terrible. Like, why would you want <laughs> this? Like it's a bunch of inflammation, oxidative stress, but then it has this sort of effect that it in increases or decreases systemic inflammation and it increases capacity to deal with oxidative stress that, that, that then re results in in uh, improved long-term health so yes i think this is this this is possible but just like unpicking all of that stuff is is really difficult i find it really fascinating um but it's i think it's, it's gonna be a long time before we can really understand this as much as we we might want to would you say that muscle science is is still relatively new muscle and exercise science as we can understand it yeah, uh, absolutely. Mainly because, so so I think the endurance and aerobic side had a bit of a head start, right? That's been that's certainly been going for longer. We have a better idea of um, how to improve uh, aerobic fitness. We were sort of people have looked at uh, mitochondrial function, VO two max, probably a little bit, you know, a little bit longer, and then you know, muscle tissue and muscle focused uh, research. Has sort of been coming as has been coming along, and there's a, a a lot of great stuff that's out there. I mean, we know how to help people improve muscle mass, right? Uh, you can kind of you can quibble about the details, but 
mechanical tension plus some kind of metabolic you know metabolic stress in some ratio you know relatively regularly every two or three days right that that that's it that's what most people need to do and so like professionals can can argue about the details but that's essentially what you need so there's there's two parts of it one is do i know how to help somebody increase their muscle mass yes i do like I don't necessarily know for one individual what the optimal training strategy is because we know that different people maybe respond to different rep ranges depending on where they are in their training experience and maybe there's a genetic component, all that kind of stuff. But I'm pretty sure that you know you go and you do uh, three sets of eight in six exercises, right? You're gonna you're gonna gain some muscle mass, and that's the kind of strategy that they've used in uh, older individuals. One of my favorite trials, the Smart Trial looked at people in their 70s. That was the training regimen they gave them. Three sets of eight, six exercises, twice a week, something anybody can do in like an hour or an hour and a half per week, right? Um, And that significantly improved muscle mass, strength, and cognitive function, right? Anybody can do that. So so I think that we're probably a bit behind, or muscle science is maybe a bit behind some of the other aspects of sports science in terms of like really digging into the mechanisms. But we're still at a point right now where we can say this approach is probably going to be re- re- beneficial to a lot of people. And you probably don't need that much, right? That's, that's not a bunch of time, a- an hour a week doing some kind of resistance training to have significant benefits, even later in life. You know, I think that's, that's really important for people to know. So there's no excuse for any <laughs> listener out there. There is literally no excuse. And I think that the recommendations are 150 minutes to 75 minutes of vigorous activity. So 150 minutes of moderate activity to 75 minutes of vigorous activity, which is essentially, what, 15 minutes a day? Yeah. Uh, that, the, that's pretty low. It, it is pretty low. And actually, right, that's that's the government recommendations. Um, and So we probably know, people- know that that's even too low, but... Thing. Yeah, it, you you could certainly make that uh, that make that argument. You know, mo- you know, so up up to a certain point, more you know, more is better. Um, and and on a, on a podcast recently, I think I think I said that I was like, it doesn't matter what you do, anything more than what you do now is going to be beneficial. And some personal trainer jumped up in the comments was like, no, people are going to be injuring themselves. I'm like, let's be realistic, right? Warning people about all these injuries they're going to get just because they're going to go f- for a, a walk and, and and touch a couple of machines in the gym. Like you're doing more harm than good at that point, right? 100%. Or, like bodybuilding training is after walking the most safe in terms of injury risk form of exercise. Um, and you you can look at professional powerlifters and bodybuilders who get injured, but that's it's it's just a different beast. So I, I think people should know that it's not that much that you need to do. Um, the injury risk is very low for normal people doing normal weight training in the gym. Um, and you can kind of mix and match. If you're thinking about, say, brain health overall or cognitive function, you can you can mix, mix and match these things. So there was a recent meta-analysis that looked at the minimum effective dose of physical activity to clinically, significantly clinically improve cognitive function. And what they meant was, what's enough so that you actually see like a meaningful change on a test? rather than just like something that's statistically significant. And what essentially came out was what you just said. They looked at it in terms of met minutes per week. So it was kind of like, which is a, so you so a met being how intense is the exercise. So you can kind of say, well, if you do less intense exercise, you just do more. And if you do more intense exercise, you don't need as much. And so they said 700 met minutes a week, which is basically 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity, which is what the government guidelines say. And that's enough to, 
like significantly improve cognitive function. There's probably more benefit above that, right? But we're not talking training 30 hours a week. We're just talking an hour of movement a day, some brisk walking, lift a few weights, right? That's it. And it could be weight or it could probably be resistance bands. If someone is traveling, it could be blood flow restriction, right? A lot of the military guys uh, yeah. post-injury use blood flow restriction. Yeah, Are great. there... So it doesn't have to be a a big barrier to entry. No, absolutely not. And so, you know, most people when they think of resistance training, right, they might think of a gym. You know, if we think about that protocol I mentioned earlier, six six machines, go to Planet Fitness, bang it out in thirty minutes. I think most people can do that. But you're right. Um, people might ask about those who are particularly frail or are traveling. Blood flow restriction training is great. I do that almost uh exclusively when, when i travel uh, resistance bands body weight really any kind of resistance um uh is all that you need you can do it at home with just what you have around um when i travel i also use electrical muscle stimulation i was um, going to ask you about that yeah okay yeah which which i quite which i quite like um and i usually do it in concert with some bands or body weight movement to kind of to, to kind of stack them, stack them together. So, like, if I if I put the electrical muscle stimulator say on my quads, and then what what it does is it it sort of electrically stimulates the muscle from the outside. So it forces a contraction from the outside, and then when it's contracting, I'll do a body weight squat. So I'm kind of like doing an eccentric movement against this stimulated concentric like contraction, and like. You get really sore quads after that. It's great. Um, Do you use a suit? Have you ever used, say, a catalyst suit or, or some of those electrical stim suits? Or is it individual target muscles? You know, maybe you'll put it on your quads and then you move over to your bicep or your glutes. Uh, I think everyone wants to see what you're doing. So you can feel free <laughs> to share so, that. That would be uh, pretty fun for everybody. Yeah. So I, uh, just because they're the ones that I'm used to, the ones I've, I use the power dots. Um, and so it's it's one muscle at a time. If I made more money as an academic, I'd buy myself a catalyst suit. Um, but that just hasn't been really been in the budget. So I'd love to try out something like that, but it's not something I've done. Okay. Well, I'm I'm sure we can arrange to get you a, a catalyst suit <laughs> because again, we all want to see your workout plan because you have access to so much academic information. But again, what's so interesting about you is the way in which you interface the academic information to the education and conceptually to the general public and that's critical and you do it yourself yeah yeah the so when, I, when i first got into this like 10 years ago right when i was starting my phd i started to write a blog and like my goal was how do i write the things that i know so that my mum can understand it right that that was that's kind of what really really drove me and then along the way you get kind of like pulled into the biohacking and the optimization and all the data and 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 all, and all that kind of stuff but you know the, the people who are focused on that are the people who need it the least um and so i think turning this stuff into accessible information that anybody can understand and feel empowered by i think that's what's really important so that's ended up like that's where i've ended back up uh doing because I, that, that's really important to me isn't that interesting that we kind of go full circle and i'm sure you did this when you were um really focused on did you see patients one-on-one -on -one? 
And you've also worked with a ton of athletes. So probably in the beginning of your career, you were probably taking a ton of different blood work, mm, urine yeah. samples, you know, like the whole shebang. This I did it all. Stool tests, all of it, urine right? tests, all, of it. all the blood tests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, if you are an operator listening to this podcast, you better believe you guys all need the stool test because of the places <laughs> that you have been. And so I don't want to hear it. You guys are doing it. But, you know, uh, when we think about the extensive amount of testing, what ultimately ends up happening with a clinician is you scale it back. You realize yeah. there are core fundamental tests that we should all be looking at. And the rest is, you know, if you've assessed the foundation and the foundation is broken, then you start there. Are there certain blood tests that you're always looking for? Have you done that? Did you throw a wide net and then scale it back? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as I got into what some people might call integrative medicine or functional medicine, and I did it with athletes, essentially. So, you know, some of them had uh, gut issues or other you know, related health issues, uh, fatigue. But some were just like, I want to perform as well as I can for as long as I can. And there was a point when, like, you come in the door. I mean, I'll take it, you know, and this was something that was sort of work to institute because it's something that's so important to a clinician but unless you're medically trained you don't necessarily know it like the history like taking a good history asking people about themselves that's like the most important thing in in most medical training they sort of drill into you or at least they do in the uk where the the um the government pays for healthcare rather than the insurance company um so then they they have tight purse strings so get as much information as you can for free before you start testing um so a history is really important but then like once you're through the door, I just like throw everything at you. It'd be like, here's a seven hundred dollar blood test. Here's like a couple of uh, four hundred dollar urine tests. Here's a four hundred dollar stool test. Right. So you spent two thousand dollars before the person like does anything. Um, and what you realize is, first of all, that a lot of those tests aren't particularly well validated. Like you go start looking for evidence that they're actually related to any of the things that they say they're related to, or that. You know, this metabolite that you're measuring in the urine in any way relates to that metabolite as it is within a cell in a certain organ in the body. And you realize, okay, well, actually, that's not not true. We don't know that. And then there's also, like, I would do a bunch of fancy hormone testing in, in urine. And then every time I got a, uh, a weird result back, I'd be like, I wish I just tested this in blood. Uh, right? Or I wish Absolutely. I'd done a, I wish I'd done a full pituitary screen up front. Um <laughs> So that's what that's why I ended up doing. So particularly in um, particularly in athletes, um, which is the population where I probably look at blood tests most frequently now, um, the basics are still the basics. So uh, complete blood count with differential. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can look you can figure out from looking at, at red blood cells and their morphology and that kind of stuff, um, and the the white blood cells and their distribution and their uh, ratios. Then like a comprehensive metabolic panel. Like basic lipids, blood sugar regulation. Maybe maybe do a fasting insulin calculator at home or R. Look at homocysteine for some. Uh, homocysteine is a, is a really important risk factor for cognitive decline, so that you yes. can figure out whether somebody needs some additional B vitamins, something like that. So like that, which is again, it's just the basics. You get it for fifty bucks. Um, and but then if I'm working with athletes, yes, we'll, we'll often do hormone panels. Um, I you know people spend a lot of time worrying about. The free, uh, free androgen index, free testosterone. Total testosterone is the thing that really matters. Like you, you can have bound testosterone that still has a physiologic effect. So, like I, I get, I get a ton of athletes who have really high sex hormone binding globulin. They're really worried that their testosterone isn't available, but they have no, you know, they're in great shape. 
And actually, SHBG is a really interesting market because the best way to decrease it is to become insulin resistant. Um, it basically SHBG is linearly correlated with insulin sensitivity. So I, I see I see really high values in the fifties and sixties all the time. Um, it's completely normal for me uh, in in athletes. Um, but one thing that is important is a, is a full pituitary screen. And I've had enough athletes come in with low testosterone. The people have been messing around, um, looking at other things. You know, maybe they've gone to see some other integrative health practitioners who'll just do lifestyle based stuff. And I've caught, at this point, maybe four or five prolactinomas um, really? in male athletes. Just and so, like now, I, I don't, I don't even, <laughs> like, don't even send them back. You come in the door, you get, you get a pituitary screen, um, particularly because you know concussions and you know hy- hypopituitism because of uh, previous head trauma. You know, it's it's an extra fifty or sixty bucks that that, that always uh, pans out as being useful. So that's like the one thing that I do that's maybe not standard. Mm. Um, I just get that as they come to the door. Uh, but other than that, it really is the basics that matter. Isn't that interesting? Uh, again, you went full circle. And listen, we're not saying that there isn't some value, but what you're really saying that is very critical is that is this test validated or not? Mm, yeah. You know, I um I have spent two decades studying protein metabolism. Don Lehman, again, still one of my best friends and longtime mentors. Yeah. And when I was looking at the initial, some of these urinary tests, they they or urinary blood, they look at amino acids in the blood, which we know the flux is so high and that's not even the primary site for the majority of amino acids. And you'll hear people say, okay, well, th- you need more glycine or you need this. And, and the clinical relevance is is not there. Yeah. The, it's... <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen people say, like higher, higher circulating branch chain amino acids are associated with this disease. Therefore, you should consume less of them. It's like that just doesn't make any sense. Like this is this is stuff that happens in concert. These things increase as your metabolic health declines. So it's like a proxy of a proxy of something that actually matters. Um, so using those things to tell somebody they need to eat more or less of a, of a specific amino acid. I mean, it just doesn't make uh, any sense. I mean. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and this is just one clinician to another clinician kind of laughing about some of this stuff. And, you know, we're not laughing about it at the expense of, of a patient. It's just really important to understand and be aware of the providers that you're using and what is the marker that you're looking for? How is it relevant? Where are you allocating funds? You know, mm-hmm. I, I will mention that, you know, stool testing, there may be some benefit for certain pathogens, although right now, and we don't have to kind of go off on a tangent on this, but right now they typically use PCR testing and mm. there's a very high false negative for PCR testing. And, and there are other ways to address it and whether that's infectious disease or looking at these these stool samples under a microscope and really having an old school parasitologist do it, which I typically recommend. Uh, sorry, guys. But, um, you know, just kind of thinking outside the box and, and what is it that we need versus want and the essential nature of some of these tests. But now moving on from that, and the prolactinoma is interesting. Um, I do have a question on muscle mass. So you talked about how the muscle mass in and of itself, it's more about the health of the muscle mass. You know, and as I think about metabolic challenges, we know that muscle mass is the primary site for glucose disposal. Mm. Healthy muscle mass is the primary site. Well, all muscle, the primary site for glucose disposal. But you'd also mentioned increase in intramyocellular triglycerides and, and you know there's ceramides and there's all kinds of di- diacylglycerol 
Um, do you think that if we increase the amount of healthy muscle mass that we potentially, just at rest, not through exercise, at rest can increase the amount of glucose disposal? Is there a correlation? Is it clinically relevant to be able to increase that glucose disposal and thus, obviously, in the diet, increase carbohydrates? Yes, potentially. But uh, I think that muscle also has to be active. Like I think there's an interaction between mass and activity. And there are some studies where they've taken um, like some of my favorite studies they did back in the olden days when you could kind of do more and the, the ethics boards didn't question what, what people were up to. Um, and so like you'll have people exercise one leg rather than the other for long periods of time. So like 10 weeks of training, one leg, but not the other leg. And you can fill people with cannulas and measure everything and like you know, arteries and veins and all this kind of stuff. And you can look at glucose disposal within a tissue, right? Because you can that you can uh, cannulate the artery going into the leg and the veins coming out of the leg. You can get some idea of glucose uptake. Uh, a lot of, lot of cool stuff. Um, the, my, all my favorite studies are like 70s physiology <laughs> studies because they could do weird and wonderful things. Um, and what, what you see is that um, if you have t like muscle tissue that's active, right? so you've trained it, then you have more glucose uptake per kilo of muscle tissue. So more muscle equals more glucose uptake and more activity equals more glucose uptake, right? So they're important together. However, if you have uh, muscle tissue that was previously trained and then gets detrained, so it becomes sedentary, then actually it, it's less good at taking up um, uh, glucose. And there are, there are some studies in individuals with uh, prediabetes or diabetes where you can see significant improvements in glucose uh, responses, say, to a meal or like continuous glucose throughout the day. But it's only like really when those people are doing activity every day. So it's the physical activity plus the muscle tissue that that's beneficial. So I, I think related to the other things we were talking about earlier, if you have more muscle but you don't do anything with it, it has the potential to be detrimental because mm -hmm. that's that's essentially the the definition of, of low quality muscle tissue. Um, however, if you gain muscle tissue and then you move it, and I and I, I do just mean like brisk walking. I, I, I don't mean that you have to be running marathons every day. That's enough to stimulate uptake. Um, and so that the I think there's an interaction there. Yes, more muscle tissue, and even at rest, will increase will take up more glucose, but only if that muscle has been recently active, like you know, within the last 24 hours, say. Um, and, you know, there's probably some some drop-off over time. Like two, like it goes down two or three days. Uh, but if that muscle tissue is continuously sedentary, even if you have more of it, I'm not sure you're going to have a meaningful um, improvement. And we know that um, sedentary muscle tissue sort of gen starts to generate this pro-inflammatory environment. So there's a possibility that if you have a ton of muscle and it's sedentary, that's worse than having less muscle that that's sedentary because there's just more of that tissue that's expecting movement and isn't getting it. But that's completely hypothetical, <laughs> but possible. Interesting. That that's really interesting. And you know, you had mentioned something about relative strength and the decrease of strength over time. Do you think that that is inevitable? So there's this this kind of loss of muscle mass and strength, and it can range what from. 0.8 to depending on how sedentary someone is to three percent, so it's it's mm. pretty significant. Do you think that there that that is an inevitable part of aging? Because 
again, we don't see 80s and 90-year-olds have the same quality, maybe quality, quantity of muscle mass that they did when, say, they were 40. Hmm. So if I go back to looking at the, the open powerlifting data um, and you know multiple s- strands of evidence, yes, I think to a certain extent, aging is inevitable. And with aging, right right now, maybe at some point we'll figure out how to completely stop that. Um, physical activity, for what it's worth, is the only thing that has been shown to either prevent or reverse all of the nine hallmarks of aging. Right, So incredibly important as part of that a- aging process. Um, but even in people who train regularly and compete in powerlifting, as they get older, they get less, they get less strong. Uh, you know, they they lose they lose strength, and with that, I'm sure they're losing muscle mass. Although that wasn't measured in the data that I've looked at. Um, so yes, I think that loss is inevitable. However, whenever you start training in your life, you can change that trajectory. So we know that in sedentary older individuals, like even if you get into your 70s or 80s, you can significantly improve strength, and strength will probably improve more than muscle mass. Um, but strength is probably right what, what we care about the most in terms of keeping you sort of safe and, and active as you get older. So you can always intervene. It's never too late to get stronger, and you, and you can you can always gain some muscle mass. You can definitely gain strength regardless of when you start. And then the earlier you start, maybe the bigger the buffer you can build up. So then as you do lose strength and muscle mass, which Unfortunately, you will. We haven't figured out how to completely help Mike O'Hearn is never losing muscle mass. Let's be <laughs> let's be real. We love you, Mike. You are never losing muscle mass. Everybody else, maybe. He he also had a pretty or still has an exceptional buffer. Um, <laughs> right, he's got a lot yes. to lose. Um, I, I I certainly wish that I had as much to lose as as he does. Um, but right so except in Mike O'Hearn, who um is looking maybe say, and maybe rep- Phil Heath maybe Phil Heath yeah, oh, yeah those no, two Phil also looks exactly as he did <laughs> um when he was at the height of his bodybuilding career yes um except in those guys who figured out the fountain of youth um we can't prevent aging entirely so we will lose muscle mass and we will lose strength but we can change that trajectory at any point and we can increase our headroom so that we you know we we get to the point where you know, we like significant loss of function and loss of mass associated with worse health happens much later. If ideally, it happens after you die of something else. All right, that that's, that's what a much think, better plan. That's yeah. what we prefer. So basically, you, you've mentioned resistance exercise and or even brisk walking. Your recommendations are not excessive it, uh, by any means, which is critical, and obviously that translates to what you're seeing in research. In terms of nutrition, I'm sure you get this question a lot. What yeah. are your thoughts? And you you actually come from it, I think, from a, a two-part perspective. Number one, a cognitive perspective. And number two, I think a body composition perspective. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, I think if we're if we're thinking about like total longevity or health span however you want to call it. You're also thinking about cognitive function. Um, and hopefully those two go go hand in hand. And in general, there are very few things where we can say, this increases your risk of this, but decreases your risk of this. In in reality, uh, uh, it, it's, it's very uncommon to say, um, you know, I'm going to give you this, this diet that's going to increase your brain health um, 
but you, you're more likely to die of cardiovascular disease. I, I that's I don't really think those trade offs exist um, as long as we structure things correctly. So when I think about the brain, um, there are a number of critical nutrients that we know are important for long term brain health. So omega three, you know, enough, enough omega three fatty acids, uh, all the B vitamins. Right, we talked about homocysteine, so we're talking B twelve, folate, B six, riboflavin uh, primarily, um, creatine. It's my favorite thing <laughs> for the brain. It's good for literally everything. Um, and I think everybody with a brain should take creatine. Uh, so you, personally. do you take creatine even if you do? Um, and do you eat red meat too? Yes, I do. Um, do I eat enough red meat to meet the amount of creatine that I think mo- most people should get? Maybe. Mm. Um, but I also know that creatine is incredibly safe for long-term use and is incredibly low risk. So if there's fractional benefits from the supplement, from the creatine that I take, you know, I'm willing to take it. Um, They've given creatine long-term after a loading dose, four to five grams a day in old patients with Parkinson's disease for years at a time, no side effects. Um, So I I think it's incredibly safe with a number of potential benefits. Um, The... Though I probably get two to three grams per day from my diet would be my mm. guess. Um, and then I take five grams on top of that every morning. Um, so creatine is important. Choline is important for the brain. Uh, and those things actually uh, interact uh, very interestingly. You need, um, in order to get, say, create healthy membranes around cells in the brain, um, one of the most important things in your synapses is DHA, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acid. In, in order to get it into a phospholipid, uh, in the cell membrane, which is where you want it, you need both uh, a healthy methylation system, which is where homocysteine and your B vitamins come in, and you also need something to attach it to, which is where choline comes in. So when what, what really frustrates me is they'll do randomized controlled trials where they'll just give people with Alzheimer's disease or cognitive decline DHA and say, oh, look, it didn't work. Well, right. that's because you didn't create an environment for that DHA to actually be used uh, and, and make its way to the brain. Um, and it's the case, that's the same case for, for a bunch of things. We know they interact. This is, it's not a single variable problem. Um, so those are the things that I really think about, um, in terms of like individual nutrients for the brain. Um, but then body composition, I think one of the best things that we can do in the modern environment is maintain muscle mass and prevent overall weight gain, right? Like just not get, not getting fatter in the modern environment is a big win. Um, so when we know that uh, protein is incredibly important for satiation, you can gain muscle tissue and strength in the absence of resistance training if you eat enough protein. Of course, they also interact. So if you add resistance training on top of protein, that's where you get your best improvements in muscle mass and strength. So you know, I imagine my recommendations are very similar to yours. I, I focus on protein first within a meal, mm-hmm. one and a half grams, um, on average per kilo per day, you know, a bit more than that is great. Um, and so, and then you can build the rest, uh, around that. But, you know, I, I believe in elements of the protein leverage hypothesis, which basically means that your body keeps eating until it gets <laughs> enough protein for the day. So if you front load that protein, get it in, then you're probably going to decrease overall caloric intake, improve the quality of your calories, because generally, you know, protein in the absence of highly processed foods you know comes in sort of nutrient dense high quality foods and but again 
shakes and bars and things like that are great if you need that to meet your protein requirements i have no problem with that um and then that's that's really where i start uh, but then sort of more broadly i believe that there are many ways to skin the nutrition cat i've seen people um perform admirably on incredibly diverse diets which leads me to not think that there's one particular way to do it but i do think you should get enough protein and then you should eat food that looks like food um but other than that you know uh, i think it's great it, advice it, yeah i think that's that's it those those are really the broad <laughs> those are really the broad recommendations uh essentially i think you nailed it uh, and just to highlight uh, one last thing is essentially you're talking about a food matrix you're not yeah. talking about the individual um uh, choline, DHA, but really how we need to start to think about foods as a, a matrix. And, yeah, and steak I, and I eggs that's really gives you all of that together. I would, I would be ideal. Oh, plus, agree. plus maybe a plus maybe a a side of uh, sardines. Get a little DHA. Sardines are hard pass. Hard the, pass there. The sardines are the dent densest food source of creatine. Four I to have five, no idea. Really, four, four to five grams per hundred grams of of sardine. It's a lot of creatine. I had no idea. My well, my daughter loves sardines. Great, especially on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, we get the whole row to ourselves. <laughs> anyway, Tommy, Doctor Tommy Wood, thank you so much for coming on. This is just going to be uh, one part of one episode. You are a phenomenal guest and human, and I'm really grateful for your time. I know how busy you are. I will include all links on where people can find you. And again, I am I'm so grateful. So this this was so much fun. Like I love you and your work. I'm a big fan of it. So it's a real honor to to get to to join you and talk about all things muscle, which I know that we're both very passionate about. And hopefully the listener is now more passionate about having heard us talk about they, it. For they so definitely long. are. And the next interview <laughs> we'll have to do in person. And uh, of course we'll we'll throw in a, a push up or pull up challenge. We'll see who's yeah. gonna win. All right, yeah. deal. Okay. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.